So we're going to start the show a little different tonight. I'm going to make a cocktail while I'm here. And you can look on the Facebook page and it'll show you I've set up a little mini bar next to my recording equipment up in my studio, i.e. the office upstairs. Um, first thing I want to make, I'm going to make a vodka martini. This is very simple, right? Okay. So I've got my mixing glass here. First, I put in here, I'm going to put in two jiggers. That's three ounces of alcohol. Okay, and I'm eyeballing it because I pretty much know what needs to be done. All right, then I'm going to add just a about a half shot of dry vermouth. Here we go. That's all we need for that. Okay, all right, now into this, we're going to put our ice. You'll notice on uh, You'll notice on the uh, photograph that uh, I couldn't find my ice bucket, so I just got a Smithix pint glass full of ice. Now, here's what some people think, and this is mostly because of James Bond, shaken, not stirred. But if it's just spirits, there's no juice in the cocktail, it doesn't need to be shaken. It just needs to be stirred. And you don't want to shake it. And the reason you don't want to shake it, although it does make a nice noise when you shake it. See, I'm just stirring it here. You don't want to break up the ice and dilute the spirit, all right? And so now we've got it nicely stirred. We're going to feel that cocktail shaker. It's getting nice and cold, all right? Okay, and now we're going to pour this into our cocktail glass. Oh, beautiful, beautiful thing there. And now I have a twist of lemon, not a slice or a wedge, and I'll talk about that later. I'm gonna run that around the rim of the glass and then drop it in there. And the oils then from the lemon will be released into the alcohol. And now I have a dry martini, made with uh, Tito's vodka, by the way, and martini and Rossi dry vermouth, so. Cheers. Delicious. And now, on with the narration. A week before Christmas in 1885, at New York City Hotel Brighton, located on the edge of Hell's Kitchen, just north and a bit west of Times Square, the structure is long gone, by the way, the hotel's bar manager wasn't feeling well, and at noon he told his staff that he was going to go home for the day. And when he got to his house, he entered and collapsed and died of a stroke. His name was Jerry Thomas, and he was only 55 years old. Jeremiah Thomas is one of those interesting characters that emerges in the history of mid-19th century America. He's a typical example of American restlessness and ambition, and a son of manifest destiny. Born on the New York frontier on the shores of Lake Ontario, near the naval ports and shipyards at Sackett's Harbor. Now remember, the United States at the time still held a military defensive posture against the British Empire of Canada. And once Jerry reached a certain age, he joined the United States Navy. And he became a sailor when hauling halyards and unfurling sails was a part of the job description, and he sailed the seven seas in defense of the Republic. 
or so the story went that he told people. Now, upon mustering out, he landed in New Haven, Connecticut, where he worked in a tavern. But the gold rush was going on in California, and so Jerry bound on a ship around Cape Horn all the way to San Francisco. And he tried his hand at prospecting for a while, but he had no luck with it, and so he fell back on something that he'd already started doing back in Connecticut, tending bar. Over the better part of the next decade, he worked in hotel bars and restaurants all over the United States, from St. Louis to New Orleans to South Carolina, and eventually he ended up back in New York City. And over that time that he was traveling around and tending bar, he amassed a collection, a collection of knowledge. And in 1862, he put that collection to paper and he authored the first reference book of its kind to ever be published in the United States. And the title of that book? The Bartender's Guide, How to Mix Drinks and a Bon Vivant's Companion. I'm Alan Tapman, and because no good story ever began with, this one time we were eating a salad, this is history, the story of alcohol. Little sip of my cocktail here. Jerry Thomas. Very few people know his name, but he is almost universally recognized by those in the know as the father of American bartending. His bartending guides have never gone out of print, and prior to his collection, there really weren't a lot of recipes floating around for mixed drinks. So, if you take that into its context, we owe a lot to Jerry Thomas, whether you're mixing a cocktail or just enjoying it. And speaking of that word, cocktail, I'm sure you've thought about this. Where did that word come from? Now be warned, when you start looking for answers to this question, there are a bunch of stories on the internet which report to answer this question, but they all have dubious origins or very murky research behind them. According to one researcher who has been obsessed with this topic for years, the origin of the word cocktail remains one of the most elusive in American English lexicon. Accounts range from it being invented in Mexico and named after an Aztec princess, or it came from New Orleans and it was named after the French egg cup, coquetier. That makes no sense either. Why would you name it after a French egg cup? All right. And then there are some that say it came from the Four Corners area of New York, invented by one barmaid named Betsy Flanagan. But there's no evidence to support any of these claims. Even the great newspaper man and a fine tippler himself, one of my favorites, H.L. Mencken sat down in 1945 to try to get to the root of this word. And what he found was that there were at least seven plausible theories, with not one of them being probable and none of them being evidential. Now, the earliest known reference to the drink by this name in print comes from a New Hampshire newspaper in 1803, and the paper was making a point of satirical humor regarding the fast young men of the day, and the, the article stated, 
A young man feeling rather squally would drink a glass of cocktail and pronounce it excellent for the head. Journalist David Wondrich, take going from that point where it was first mentioned in New Hampshire in 1803, did some further investigation and he found that by 1810 the term had been printed a number of times in journals and newspapers and all of the references had come from roughly a small triangle of area extending from Boston to Albany, New York, to New York City. Before this time, the term was known nowhere else in reference to a drink. So the birthplace of the name cocktail was either in southern New England and or slash the Hudson River Valley, which, if you want to know geographically speaking at the time, both were considered the same area. And it happened sometime in the first decade of the 19th century. But that doesn't tell us under what circumstances the term actually emerged. I'll come back to this in a bit. So just put that off to the side. Have a drink. I'm going to. The one problem with martinis is they go down entirely too fast. So if one looks at the history of mixed drinks and their consumption, you'll find that it began not as a recreational pursuit as we think of it today, but as a medicinal compound to treat various ailments of the day, with alcohol being the primary ingredient. For centuries, alcohol, especially distilled spirits, have been prescribed by physicians and lay healers as a panacea for all types of ailments. Everything from chronic pain to colds and flu to digestive troubles to insomnia. I'll admit I've used them all for, I've used it at different times for all of those things. Anyway, now when I consider the question of alcohol use throughout history, it would seem to me that prior to the rise of the temperance movement in the late half of the 19th and early 20th century, the question is not whether alcohol or alcoholism was pervasive in society, but because it absolutely was. But given the propensity for alcohol use, <laughs> how the hell did societies even function? I guess everybody just walked around with a buzz all day long. See, as I have explored before in the podcast, alcohol was drank in most urban and semi-urbanized settlements. Well, really, it was drank anywhere where the, there was a concentration of human habitation. Alcohol, especially wheat, beer, cider, and wine, were a far safer alternative to bacteria-laden water, which accumulated in areas where people defecated and urinated. Now, prior to the Industrial Revolution, most alcohol was produced in the home or by someone in the community who was especially good at its production, and he sold it to his or her neighbors, who would then take the drink home to be consumed domestically. Now, some of these producers of this alcoholic, these alcohol beverages would then attach a public house, uh, a tavern, an inn, or a hostelry to their business, whether it be a brewery or a winery or a cidery, uh, to sell their product by the individual flagon, tankard, noggin, or cup. Another model for this business at the time would see the proprietor of a house of hospitality make his own products, usually beer. 
and this was the case as we when we talked about Arthur Guinness. His brewing career began when he brewed ale at his father's inn. Wine and cider were a bit more problematic in production as transportation of fresh fruit from the field posed more challenges than the hauling of dry grain and grist for beer. And as the owner of these establishments, that is where this alcohol was served by the individual drink, well, the owner generally worked the counter. So these innkeepers, publicans, tavern keepers, they could technically be considered the first bartenders, despite the fact that mostly what they served was unadulterated. That is, it wasn't Uh, It wasn't changed in any way by the man serving it. Or if it did have separate flavorings and ingredients, those had been added to the beverage during the process used in fermentation or in storage of the beverage to the cask, bottle, or earthenware jar. Now, during the American colonial period, there were very few mixed drinks, but there were some flip, Syllabub, Stonewall, and Rattuskull, you can look all these up, these were very simple drinks that generally consisted of a hard spirit being added to a base alcoholic beverage. For example, Stonewall, which was very popular in the taverns of New England, it was the favorite of Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain Boys and uh, a generation before with Rogers Rangers, consisted of a strong dark rum being added to hard cider. And Rattle Skull was a stultifying concoction of dark rum, dark strong ale with flavoring of lime and nutmeg. And that actually sounds pretty good. But cocktails as we see them today have a completely different lineage. The precursors to the cocktails we know in America were heavily advertised and sold as elixirs by apothecaries in London in the 17th and early 18th centuries. Now these elixirs generally had a base beverage of sweetened brandy or a fortified wine such as Madeira, Port, or Sherry, and to which bitters would be added. Concoctions, bitters of course, are concoctions of extracts from roots, barks, and fruit peelings, and we still use them today in the formulation of a number of mixed drinks, including Old Fashions, Manhattans, etc. Many of the apothecaries, they sold these bitters separately with the recommendation that the customer then add the bitters to wine or brandy or even beer. And generally, the apothecaries, they also sold wine, brandy, and beer. And later on, they started to sell gin. By the mid-1700s, Bitters were being added to all sorts of alcohols. Gin and bitters, brandy and bitters, port and bitters, rum and bitters, on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. And you might be able to say that George Washington was the first person to hold a documented cocktail hour when he and his staff at the end of the American Revolution were meeting with the British officers to arrange the surrender of New York City in 1783. And while they were gathered, he looked at his watch and he noted that it was near dinner time and he called for his servants to serve wine and bitters to all those assembled to whet their appetites. Now, back to this term cocktail. 
Now, while it's first used in the American lexicon to denote a mixed alcoholic beverage, the term cocktail, two words, was used in England during the century prior as a slang for a particular procedure in which pepper, but more commonly ginger, or any spice that might act as an irritant uh, against mucous membranes. Anyway, it was used to, um, well, here, let me just read the entry from Francis Gross's 1785, a classical dictionary of the vulgar tongue. The definition for the verb to fig, a.k.a. to fig, was F-E-A-G-U-E is how it is spelled. And Gross defines it as to put ginger up a horse's fundament to make him lively and carry his tail well. Horse traders, in other words, would put a ginger suppository up the horse's ass so it would carry its tail in a raised or cocked up manner, which was a characteristic of a spirited horse. And Gross goes on to add that the term is used figuratively for encouraging or spiriting oneself up. Time for a drink. And my glass is empty. Oh well. Let's make another one. I'll have another. Oops, there went the lid to my shaker. Let's have another Tito's. Uh, it's got water in it. Gotta dump this out. What am I do with this? I'll put it here in my water glass. There we go. Alright, so uh, Tito's vodka. Right. And a bit of dry vermouth. Just, just a little bit. Don't need a lot. Oops, there goes the lid to that. Dexterity. It's one of the first things that goes when you've been drinking. Here, we're going to add ice. Stir. I'm thirsty, so I'm not going to stir it as long as time. All right. Strain into the cocktail glass. I'm going to use a wet, or a slice. I'm going to use a slice of lemon this time, not a twist. I'm going to put some more lemon in there. Boom. All right. And now I have cocktail number two, same thing. Dry martini with lemon. Mm. All right. Where was I? In the 1790s, in both England and Ireland, ginger and pepper compounds used uh, to fig a horse began to be called cocktails in the horse trading circles. Uh, in all examples of the use of the term at this time, cocktail was either two words or a compound word with a hyphen between cock and tail, and basically it was a descriptive uh, word, meaning to, for the horse's tail to cock up. And it stands to reason that the practice of faging would have only been known in a very small circle of people, that is, those involved in the marketing and trading of horse flesh. So, the use of the term cocktail would have been narrowly confined to those of the sporting class. So, in the lexicon of England and Ireland, 
the use of a gingery or peppery additive to a gin or beer began to be called, guess what? A cocktail. In other words, to pepper it up or give it a little kick in those sporting circles. However, the term in crossing the Atlantic appears as if at first it it meant to add anything to a drink, but especially bitters, whether it was beer, wine, rum, or gin. Now, this was especially true with gin and bitters, which was at the time the quintessential British drink. Um, The the British were just getting their toe in the water in India. They hadn't uh, developed quinine, and we'll talk about gin and tonics one show. It's an interesting history in itself. Anyway, back to what I was talking about. Anyway, gin and bitters was the English drink. But in America, especially in New York, the drink began to be called a, guess what? Gin cocktail. There is still a lot we don't know in the etymology of this term, specifically when and who switched the term from uh, being the use of ginger into bitters in making a cocktail, but it is the most evidentially researched story that the lexicographers have. So, lexicographers had. I have have had two, not quite two cocktails yet. I had a beer before, too, so... But anyway, it's the most evidentially strong story that we have about where the term cocktail came from. So everything else, unless you can come up with some greater evidence for the name of, uh, for the origins of the name cocktail, the term cocktail, anyway, I'm going with what I have found out. So there it is. Now, by the time that Jerry Thomas is mixing drinks in the 1850s, the term is known far and wide in America, and it coincides with the emergence of bartenders in the classic sense in which we know them today. And now, another thing that hastened the movement from simple drinks, just like going in and ordering beer, maybe having a, maybe having a little bit of rum put into it, to these more complicated concoctions was the Industrial Revolution, which meant the mass production of many different kinds of liquor and a reliable and consistent international trade route. Exotic liquors and ingredients, especially fruits and fruit juices, became more easily obtainable in the most major cities. And Thomas was the perfect man at the perfect time to create the perfect profession, perhaps the most iconic profession, in the hospitality world. Think about how many movies you have watched or television shows where the bartender is the wise old sage guy. Or it might be a he. It might be a woman. You know, it might be a woman. That's the, she's, the, she's the font of knowledge. You know? Bartenders have always held a special place in our society. And it comes from this time. Jerry Thomas created this persona. He introduced flair to the profession. He understood that bartending was more than just making drinks. It was a performance. His most famous drink at the time clearly illustrates this, the Blue Blazer. Now, the Blue Blazer was really more show than it was substance. 
and Thomas perfected the drink during his time at the El Dorado Gambling Palace in San Francisco. Actually, the Blue Blazer is nothing more than a hot toddy, that is, scotch whiskey with boiling water, sugar, and lemon. But there's a big twist. Now, I'll put a video, I'll have, well, actually, I'll have Brian put up a video. I don't know how to put a video up on a fucking website. Don't ask me. I don't know how to do it. Anyway, Brian will put up a video showing us how this particular cocktail is made, and it's pretty impressive. Yeah, but in the meantime, while I describe this, use your imagination. The recipe is thus. Equipment needed. Two silver-plated handled mugs. It's very important that the mugs have handles, okay? First, take a wine glass. That is two ounces. In the day, a wine glass was two ounces was considered a full wine glass. Boy, you try to do that now and people would say, well, give me some more fucking wine. But you got to remember, most of the wine sold back then was fortified wine. They put alcohol in it, usually grain alcohol and sugar, all right, to preserve it. Most, most wine didn't come, wasn't stored well, it didn't keep well. So they had to do something to make wine last, so they put grain alcohol to it and they added sugar. And so it was more like Manischewitz. Or, oh, what was that shit we drank? Mad Dog 2020. We drank that in high school. Anyway, it, <clears throat> it was cheap and it got you. Oh, never mind. Anyway, so you take a wine glass that is two ounces of high-proof scotch. And also, remember at this time, most whiskeys were sold by the cask directly from the distillery. They were taken by the cask and they'd be shipped to the places where... Some places blended whiskeys, like Johnny Walker's, one of the most famous in Scotland. But most came directly here in America, it came directly to the tavern in the cask. Anyway, so it would be around 75 to 80% alcohol, and then the bars and taverns would cut the strength with water once it was they were at the establishment. So you take two ounces of high-proof scotch whiskey and a quarter pint, that is four ounces of boiling water. Pour the whiskey and boiling water into one of the mugs. Ignite that liquid with fire, and while it is blazing, mix both ingredients by pouring them four or five times from one mug to the other. Now, if done well, this will have the appearance of a continuous stream of fire flowing between the two mugs. Now, pour the liquid into a small bar tumbler, extinguish the flame, sweeten it with one teaspoonful of white sugar and a lemon wedge, and there is your drink. And speaking of drink, I need one. So, Thomas's guide in regards to the Blue Blazer goes on to recommend that the bartender practice the pouring of liquid between the two mugs with cold water until the procedure is perfected, as the novice at this maneuver will invariably scald the shit out of himself. I added the shit. Um, that's my adjective. Um, a couple of... Actually, it's an adverb. Anyway, a couple of personal notes on flaming drinks. Firstly, if you own a bar and you would happen to burn the place down because of a flaming drink incident, you can kiss your insurance goodbye because they won't carry it. They won't cover it, I should say. Most carriers will ask you when you uh, interview or fill out the application for your insurance in both in regards to property and liability coverage if you will be serving flaming drinks. 
And if you say yes, you'll, you will not get any coverage. They won't give you a policy. But if you say, no, we'll never do that, and then you do have an incident where somebody gets hurt or there is fire, you're, you're basically fucked. You really are. So I have just basically said no flaming drinks. Now, secondly, there are two incidents that I did have when I was uh, owner-manager of a bar, and both of them were at Shoeless Joe's up in Hannibal back in the early 90s. My friend Mary Lynn Paff, uh, she remembers the bar from back then, and her sister Andrea. And, oh, those were great days, weren't they, kids? Now, the first incident uh, was with a flaming shot of chartreuse liquor, liqueur, which was knocked over accidentally by a patron while it was still burning. Uh, and it ran fire down the bar, and nobody got hurt, so everybody laughed. Ha ha, it was funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the second incident, however, was not as funny as a patron caught his face and beard on fire. If you've ever smelled burning hair, it stinks. Now, luckily, he wasn't hurt badly, but it was enough of a scare for me that at that time, right then, I decided that flaming drinks would no longer be served. Um, so, there you are. Moving on. Another drink that Jerry Thomas perfected while he was in San Francisco, although it is doubtful that he invented it, but he learned it from another bartender who worked at the Occidental Hotel, was the Martinez. And it was so named as it was a favorite of those travelers who were waiting for the ferry to the town of Martinez across San Francisco Bay. Now, the Martinez is one ounce of gin and two ounces of sweet red vermouth, a dash of bitters, two dashes of maraschino liqueur, which is a liqueur made in Italy from tart cherries and sugar. The maraschino cherries that you get here in the United States are nothing like those in in Europe. So, yeah, the the cher- what they call maraschino cherries here, these are candied cherries. They're okay. They're 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 crap. Anyway. So you take this, ounce of gin, two ounces of sweet red vermouth, a dash of bitters, two dashes of maraschino liquor, shaken with ice, strained into a cocktail glass, and garnish it with a side of lemon. Sounds delicious, actually. All right, so some have said that because of the name and the use of gin, that this is the precursor of the martini. But the rest, the recipes are so dissimilar, I doubt this. I, I doubt the veracity of this story. See, the classic dry martini, that is, two ounces of dry gin, although we use three at Patty Malone's, two ounces of dry gin and one ounce of dry white vermouth, garnished with an olive or a lemon, and usually just a twist, not a twist of lemon. A twist is a sliver of the rind off of the lemon, folks. Okay, so I... Not a wedge of lemon, not a slice of lemon. A twist is when you slice off a bit of the rind and you twist it to open up the pores in the rind to release the essential oils into the drink. You don't want the juice in the drink. You just want the essential oils. So don't come into the bar and say, I'd like this with a twist. And then when you get a twist... You say, that's just a piece of peeling. I want a twist. You, you're a fucking idiot. You, you get the fuck out of here. That's what I want to say. I never say that. I said, no, no, 
a twist is just a peel. If you wanted a wedge of lime or lemon, I'll get you a wedge of lime or lemon. Or if you want a slice of lime, I'll get you, or lemon, I'll get you that. But you asked for a twist because you saw it in a movie and you thought, that sounds really cool. I'll have a vodka on, I'll have a Grey Goose vodka on the rocks with a twist. And then you get a twist and you say, no, no, I want, I wanted a, a, a piece of lime or lemon or whatever it was that my pretentious fucking asshole wanted. He said, oh, fuck you, get out of here. You don't know what you're talking about. I had somebody not too long ago, they came in and they, they wanted Grey Goose with 7-Up and a twist. I'll just leave that there. You, you can think what you want of it. Anyway, moving on. <clears throat> Back to the martini. It The martini as a drink really doesn't arrive on the scene until the early 1900s and first at the Knickerbocker Hotel in New York where the story goes it was named after an Italian bartender at the hotel whose name was Martini, but again... There's no evidence that this is even true. See, I think the name came from the dry white vermouth that is used in making the drink because it is the most well-known and popular white vermouth sold in the United States, and it has been since the early 1900s, and that is white and red vermouth, both made by Martini and Rossi of Italy. Thirsty here. And a perfect martini, and that's the name of the drink, a perfect martini. And by the way, Nate at the pub makes a excellent perfect martini. And don't take my word for it. That comes from Dr. Voss, who's a retired physician, who is a great gentleman. He lives here in town. He comes to the pub, and he has told me that Nathan makes the best perfect martini outside of his own personal bar at home. That's kind of an accomplish, uh, a compliment, you know. Now, a perfect martini is made with two parts gin and one part each of both white and red vermouth. And it's served with either a lemon or an olive. It just depends upon your taste. I'd say with the sweet red vermouth that probably a lemon would be better with it. I don't know. I've never drank one. You know, I need to do that. If I had some red vermouth right now, I'd make one, but I don't. So there we go. So, wait a minute, go back to the Martinez Martini story. I guess if you take out the bitters and the maraschino liqueur from the Martinez and you switch the measures of gin and sweet vermouth and you add an additional measure of white vermouth and then, uh, well, you'd have a perfect martini, I suppose. But, you know, maybe that's where the name comes from, but I still kind of doubt it. It's the veracity of it. it. It's a stretch. Now, back to our friend Jerry Thomas. Thomas perfected the craft of bartending, and after he arrived back in New York City, he started as the head bartender at the Metropolitan Hotel. But in 1866, he started his own place because he had gained so many customers that were coming to the Metropolitan to see him. And he, he had this place on Broadway between 21st and 22nd Street, and that is where he gained his greatest fame. And he, it, and it, he is credited with the creation at this time of some of his most famous concoctions, the Brandy Daisy, which is kind of a brandy sour, the Santa Cruz Sour. Yeah, it, Thomas perfected sour mix. He made all kinds of sours, whiskey sours, vodka sours, gin sours. 
Now, sour mix is really nothing more than concentrated lemonade. It's lemon juice and sugar, and it's just not watered down. There's a little bit of water, but not like a lemonade. But anyway, that's what a sour mix is. And it's at this time, at his place on Broadway between 21st and 22nd Street, that he perhaps creates his most famous drink, the Tom Collins. So, his recipe for the Tom Collins, this is in his 1876 edition of his Bartender's Guide, is as follows. Use a large bar glass. Take four or six dashes of sweet, simple syrup, the juice of a small lemon, one large wine glass, or again, two ounces of gin, two or three lumps of ice. you got to remember, ice was very expensive back at this time because there weren't a lot of, there weren't any machines that made ice. You had to cut it out of the rivers in the wintertime and then store it in ice houses, and there used to be one in Hannibal. They'd pull ice chunks off of the Mississippi River, and they'd store this ice there, and, and so people would deliver ice. Anyway, they had stopped delivering ice by the time I was born in, eight, in 1961, but the ice house was still there. But anyway, so anyway, what was, what was it? Five or six dashes of simple syrup, small lemon juice of... A large wine glass or two ounces of gin, two or three lumps of ice. Shake all of this well and strain into a large bar glass. Fill up the glass with plain soda water and drink it while it is lively. Now today the recipe has morphed into a more simple drink. It's a jigger of gin at our place. That's an ounce and a half. In a tall glass which we call a Collins glass. Everybody calls it a Collins glass. You know, the cylindrical glasses that are frosted. That's a Collins glass, anyway. You then fill it with half sour mix and then half 7-Up or Sprite. You garnish it with a maraschino cherry, a candied cherry, or an orange slice, or perhaps both. But did you ever wonder who Tom Collins was? Who, who, who was this drink named after? So... In 1874, just two years before Jerry Thomas published his drink recipe of the Tom Collins, in New York and elsewhere in the United States, there was a thing going on. See, a guy, let's call him uh, a hustler, he'd approach someone who he knew by name and he would start a conversation by saying, hey, do you know Tom Collins? To which the listener, who probably kind of maybe knew this guy a little bit but didn't know him real well, he would say, I don't know anybody named Tom Collins. And then the first guy would then say, well, but he's been talking about you and he's been saying some pretty bad things. Now, if the first guy's any good at this pitch, he'd get the listener all riled up into a frenzy. And so the listener has been like, he's like, what, what, what did he say? Where, where did he say that? Where is he? Where, where is this? Where's this Tom Collins? I got to find out who this guy is. What is he saying this shit about me? And so the first guy would say, I just saw him. He's just around the corner over at McSweeney's bar or somewhere else nearby, right? This conversation about the non-existent Tom Collins became a proven hoax of exposure. That is, 
taking advantage of people that don't have all of the information or maybe they're just not real bright, okay? And it spread throughout the country in the mid-1870s until people started to hear about it and they got the wiser of it. Now, the hoax at its most innocent, it just got the listener riled up and he would go after the fictional Collins or and everybody back where he, they would all get a laugh. <laughs> Another not-so-innocent motivation for the hoax was to get the listener, also known as the Mark, get him to rush off angry, not paying attention to what's going on, and perhaps he would leave something of value behind, perhaps a coat, maybe a satchel, or if he was at a bar, maybe he left his wallet sitting on the bar. And then the hoaxer would just pick up whatever the guy had left, and he'd walk off with it. But at its most sinister, the hoax, the mark would rush off on a route that was perhaps through an alley or down a dark street where the person, the hoaxer, would have accomplices waiting to mug him. It became such a widespread phenomena that even newspapers across the country got into the act with public notices announcing that Tom Collins had been sighted at various locations throughout the city. So that's where the name of the cocktail comes from. Jerry Thomas's saloon in New York City was one of the most famous watering holes in the country. And visitors to the city came in every night to see the performance and to imbibe the libations. Jerry Thomas, he rose high and he rose fast. He collected art. He co-mingled with the best society of New York City. He walked about Gotham dressed to the nines with a stick pin in his cravette, kid gloves on his hand, and a gold-capped walking stick. He traveled to Europe on extended holidays with his wife and his two daughters. And his books... The Bartender's Guide, well, it sold very well for him. Any bartender in America who wanted to be like Jerry Thomas had to have a copy of The Bartender's Guide and Bon Vivant's Companion. But Jerry took his fortune and he made some speculative investments on Wall Street, and that turned out to be his end. He was forced to sell his art collection to pay for his poorly made investments. And eventually, he had to sell the tavern, a successful business still at the time. He tried to open a second location, but being short of capital and having it in a less favorable spot in town, he lost that too. And at the end of his life, he was the bar manager at the rundown, very seedy Brighton Hotel on the edge of Hell's Kitchen on the, uh, on the east side of Manhattan. But Jerry Thomas's legacy didn't end there. Generations of bartenders have used his recipe and they followed his techniques, which are still the standard of successful bartenders today. Uh, in the wake of Thomas came Cocktail Bill Boothby of San Francisco, who practiced his craft at the Palace Hotel Bar from the 1890s up until Prohibition. And Boothby also published a book of cocktail recipes, but unlike Thomas, 
Boothby credited other bartenders when he used one of their drink recipes in his publication. But the impact of bartenders like Thomas and Boothby not only had affected the United States, but in 1920, with the passing of Prohibition, hundreds of professional bartenders were out of of jobs. Whenever I start to talk about Prohibition, I start to get thirsty. And so I'm going to make another drink. Uh, This drink, though, I'm going to make a gin. I have some Dingle Gin. I've got uh, I got Dingle Gin here. Dump out that into my water glass. All right, I got Dingle Gin here, and I got a little bit of ice left in my Smittix pint glass. All right, put that into my cocktail glass. I'm gonna pour about two ounces of Dingle Gin right there. Okay, yeah, a little more there. There we go. And I've got a bottle of Fever Tree Mediterranean Tonic Water. This is the real stuff. This comes from England. It's made with real quinine. Like I said, I'm going to talk about gin and tonics in a very near future. So I pour that in there with the gin. And then I've got a wedge of lemon. I'm going to sprinkle in there, rub that around there, drop that in the drink. And there we have the classic gin and tonic. I'm taking this so my malaria does not flare up. Mm. So, anyway, back to my story. The golden age of bartending of the late 19th and early 20th centuries was over. Thank you, Prohibition. Prior to Prohibition, America was the place to come to from around the world if you wanted to learn the craft of bartending. But that all ended with the 18th Amendment and the passage of the Volstead Act. Some bartenders, they picked up work in speakeasies in the American cities, but the business changed. It was no longer about the performance that mattered. It was only about the fix from the alcohol and how much did it cost. Ah, of course, there were high-ended clientele who expected just the absolute best. Think of the great Gatsby, F. Scott Fitzgerald and all of that. But most speakeasies and behind-the-scenes taverns, it was just about how much you could sail, sell excuse me, and not getting caught. So... The best of the best bartenders in America, well, they found work across the Atlantic Ocean in Europe, and especially in France, and especially in Paris. A surge of expatriated Americans, especially writers and artists, they found themselves in Paris after World War I. It became their mecca. And they and the Parisians, they reaped the benefits that Prohibition had sent their way crafted artisan bartenders. Ernest Hemingway once noted that it was hard not to find an American tending bar in Paris. And it was in Paris where we get one of today's favorite cocktails and a specialty of ours down at Patty Malone's Irish Pub. In 1921, Fernand Petitieu, a French bartender working at Harry's New York Bar in Paris, which is a great place, by the way, 
For Harry McElhone, a Scotsman who had learned the trade of saloon keeping in New York City. Well, Petillot introduced a drink to the American expats that frequented the bar. And according to Petillot, another bartender and an American, also working at Harry's, George Jessel, claimed to have created the drink, but in Petillot's own words, <clears throat> his drink was nothing but vodka and tomato juice when I took it over. I covered the bottom of the shaker with four large dashes of salt, two dashes of black pepper, two dashes of cayenne, a layer of Worcestershire sauce, and then I had a dash of lemon juice and some cracked ice. And then I put two ounces of vodka and two ounces of thick tomato juice. Shake, strain, and pour, and voila, la Bloody Mary. <laughs> it's terrible French accent. I've been drinking, okay? I can do better if I'm sober. Petiot moved to the United States in the mid-1920s, and where that was where he added a dash of Tabasco sauce to his recipe. He became the head bartender at New York's very famous St. Regis Hotel in 1934, where he remained until his retirement in 1966, becoming one of New York's most popular bartenders. What I really love about this story is that Petiot was a Frenchman who was trained in Paris to be a bartender by a Scotsman who had been a bartender in New York before Prohibition, and then Petiot who learns his bartending craft during Prohibition in Paris, moves to New York, and becomes one of the most famous bartenders in the United States. And he invented one of the most iconic drinks to ever be served in any bar in America. A quick side note here before I wrap this thing up. We make our own Bloody Mary mix down at the pub, and we make it from scratch. And we add it to the tomato juice when you order the cocktail. That's when it's made. And we also have a special additional ingredient inside the uh, tomato juice, or inside the Bloody Mary mix. It's a family recipe. But once you've had a Bloody Mary made from scratch, that mix that comes in a bottle like Mr. and Mrs. T, you'll never drink it again. So I invite you down to have one. Now, coming out of Prohibition in America, the profession of bartending, well, it was in a hangover. Places were opening up, and there weren't enough professionals to hit the ground running. And the Prohibition mindset, it had changed how people thought about drinking. Consequently, classic complex concoctions like those championed by Jerry Thomas and Bill Boothby, well, they pretty much went the wayside and they were replaced with drinks that were made with ease. A lot of this is because of the soft drink industry. Rum and Coke, gin and tonic, scotch and soda, seven and seven. There were some places that revived the art, at least a bit. Craftsmen, bartenders like Ernest Gant, a New Orleanian who wound up in L.A. at the end of Prohibition, and he opened a small 25-seat bar, and he called the place Don the Beachcomber. 
and he changed his name to Don Beach, and he decorated the place with driftwood and souvenirs from the South Pacific, including tiki totems, and he started the tropical drink craze. Now, Vic Bergeron, he was inspired by Don Beach, and he opened the first Trader Vic's in Oakland, California, and he perfected the Mai Tai. Now, we owe a lot to both Don Beach and Trader Vic. Most of these crazy tropical drinks that people order today and the shots are either their inventions or derivations of those concoctions. Now, in recent years, there has fortunately been a renaissance in cocktail bars taking place with bartenders who are using techniques of the old to create both classic cocktails and new creations. Not every drink is any more haphazardly thrown together by eyeballing a few ingredients and then pouring it into a 10 ounce martini glass. Speaking of martini glass, I'm not going Bartending is a craft at these places. It's not about the quantity of drinks you can make, but about the quality that you can put into that one drink. The reward at such places is exposing patrons to cocktails and flavors that many have likely never experienced before. Now, I'll admit, I'm not the mixologist I once was. I'm way out of practice. And I think that might have a lot to do with what the clientele expects today. I still love it when someone comes to the pub and they order an old-fashioned or a Manhattan or a perfect martini. And if you've got a classic cocktail idea that you'd like to try out, and you're within the sound of my voice, come down to the pub and let us know. We'll work with you. We'll get it up and going. Maybe it's time that Nate and I reintroduce, bleh, reintroduce Jefferson City to classic cocktails. We'll have to have a discussion about it. I'll get back to you on that. Listen right here and you'll find out. But if you do come to the pub, hey, look, don't you fucking dare ask for a frozen margarita or a daiquiri or a fucking pina colada. We don't have a blender, and if we did, I'd throw it at you. And we will never have a blender. <laughs> We're a pub, goddammit. This isn't Trader Vic's. So, this is your drunk Uncle Alan. I'll leave you tonight with the words of that great drinking man, one of my favorites, Ernest Hemingway, who once said, Don't bother with churches, government buildings, or city squares. If you want to know about a culture, spend a night in its bars. History, episode 25, was written and produced by me, Alan Tapman. The technical director of history is Brian McGeorge. History, the story of alcohol is a wild Irish production, all rights reserved, and is recorded at River's Edge Studio and Patty Malone's Irish Pub in Jefferson City, Missouri. To learn more about our local pub, find us on Facebook at Patty Malone's Irish Pub. This week's phrase for you podcast listeners and patrons at the pub is... It's a Bloody Mary morning in the afternoon. It's a bloody merry morning in the afternoon. Yes, that's it, Andy. Tell your server or bartender that phrase and get a special off offer off of any mixed drink. 
That's this Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, May 9th, 10th, and 11th between 3 and 9 p.m. It's a Bloody Mary morning in the afternoon. Tell that to your bartender and receive a special offers, offer off of any mixed drink. Only one special person, uh, only one special person per, per day, only one special per person per day, and this offer is not valid to anyone under the age of 21. And we've got a new Patreon patron this week. Thank you. Thank you very much to our new friend. Welcome to the History Family, Kevin Lansford. Big shout out to Kevin and also to all of our patrons. Thank you guys for helping us make this happen. If you'd like to be a supporting patron, it's really easy. And it costs you no more than a beer a month. A one draft beer a month, $5. Go to the website and in the upper right hand corner of the page, click on support. There you'll find out how to become a monthly contributor to the program. You'll be helping us to offset web hosting and podcast platform fees, as well as underwriting our expenses related to recording, editing, time spent researching, writing, and drinking while we're recording. Thanks again, because you guys make the world go round for us. A reminder, it's only two weeks and it'll be Sunday, May 21st, and the Mothers, Brothers, and Sisters Beer and Baseball Road Trip. And we've got just a very few spots left, and I have a feeling we're going to run out in the next couple of days. But you need, so if you want to get in there, you need to send me an email or a message through Facebook immediately. Only $59 per person, which includes coach transportation to Springfield from Patty Malone's and back, beverages on the coach, a tour of Mother's Brewing Company in Springfield, pizza lunch courtesy of Bechtel Beverage, dugout box seats at Hammonds Field to see the Springfield Cardinals take on their Texas League rivals, the Northwest Arkansas whatevers, and sandwich, chips, and beverage on the ride back to JCMO. And if you'd like more information on how you can join us, send me an email at cheers at history.com. And if you're a Patreon patron, take 10% off of that and make it only $53. But tickets are going fast, as I said. We're down to just a few, so don't wait too long. Get in touch soon. Thanks to everyone who shared the post on Facebook and Twitter. If you haven't yet started, please follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash history on Twitter at history. Please like, share the post about the episodes when they come out each week. That's the best way we can get the word out to the people. And if you've got a friend that's a history nerd like me, that likes to have a bevy or cocktail like me, Well, then tell them about history. It's greatly appreciated. And thanks for spreading the gospel of history. If you're a fan of the show and you're so moved, a glowing review on iTunes is greatly appreciated. You can also like us on SoundCloud and Stitcher and follow us. To all of you who do such, thank you very much. That's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me. Any questions or show ideas, send me an email to cheers at history.com. You can find more information about the podcast, and I promise I'm going to put up the video about making the blue blazer at www.history.com. That's H-I-S-H-T-O-R-Y. Theme music to history is provided by Ben Sound. Do you need music for a project? Then contact www.bensound.com and see what solutions they have for you. That's B-E-N-Sound. 
www.thebigfatsuit.com. And again, to all of you who listen every week, and those of you who listen in bunches when you're on a road trip, you know what? Thank you. Thank you so much. I promise I'll keep trying to get better. I will, I will. And until I see you, have a great week. Be safe. Drink responsibly. Don't drink and drive. And until next week, if I don't see you down at the pub, I'll see you right here on the podcast. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, Merrily, you are the measure. Goodbye, everybody.